Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Morning, Carrie. We are nibbling on croissants mm -hmm. and uh, drinking coffee in this early morning. Very early morning. So this month, we're going to be discussing families in literature, specifically novels that depict the sweep of multiple generations over time, from 100 Years of Solitude to White Teeth. Which is one of my favorite books, White Teeth. I love Zadie Smith. Mm, me too. We talk about her a lot on the show, don't we? We do, and I just Instagrammed about her too. Um, but there we go. Fangirls is fine. Why are we so fascinated and entertained by multi-generational sagas? With us today to help answer that question is Sarah Taylor, author of The Shore. In this debut novel, multiple generations of one family live and survive on a group of islands in the Chesapeake Bay off the coast of Virginia. The Shore was nominated for the Bailey's Prize for Fiction and the Guardian First Book Award, and has drawn comparisons to David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. Which I've still not read, shamedly. It took me three tries. It's three. worth it. It is? Okay, all right. I'll, I'll leave it underneath Infinite Jess, which I'm still battling with. That took me some tries, too. Okay. <laughs> Octavia and I will also be discussing the theme more in depth and recommending books. But first, here's our interview with Sarah Taylor. We asked her to start with a reading. Target Practice, 1995. When news of the murder breaks, I'm in Matthews, buying chicken necks so my little sister Renee and I can go crabbing. There isn't much in the way of food in the house, but we found a dollar and 63 cents in change and decided free crabs would get us the most food for that money. Usually we use bacon rinds for bait, but we've eaten those already. I'm squatting down looking at the boxes of cupcakes on a bottom shelf when a woman steps over me to get to the register. Matthews is small and the shelves are crowded in. When Mama brought us here to get food, Renee and me would have contests to see who could get from the front door to the grimy meat counter at the back in the fewest hops. I could do it in seven. She's a big fat woman with more of an equator than a waist. She steps heavy, all of her trembling as she does, and for a moment I'm worried she's going to fall and skish me. She dumps a dozen can of pork and beans on the belt and gets out her food stamps, then digs down the front of her stretched out red shirt and pulls a wrinkled $10 bill out of her bra to pay for a pack of menthols. Hear what happened to Cable Bloxham? She asked the cashier. The cashier hasn't. They found him waist deep in the mud of Mutton Hunk Creek, had his face shot to pieces and all swole up with being in the water. His girlfriend had to identify him by the tattoo on his back. The cashier's eyebrows jump up and her eyes get big. I keep rummaging among the cupcakes. The cashier can see me, but they'll probably keep talking anyway. Being 13 doesn't get me noticed any more than being 12 did. My necks are starting to drip blood and chicken ooze through their newspaper onto my leg. They know who done it, the cashier asks, as she picks up the limp bill and unlocks the glass front tobacco case. Not yet. Police say they used a slug-loaded shotgun. They couldn't find no cartridges, though. Well, that's a lot of help. Everyone around here has one of those, the cashier answers, and she's right. We've even got one, sitting next to the twenty-two by the porch door, in case deer show up in the yard. And that ain't even the half of it. The lady leans in close, but her whisper is almost as loud as her talking voice. They done cut his thang clean off. They done cut his thang clean off. I love that. How did that line come to you? Um, I'm not. I'm not really sure exactly. I, th I think it's sort of a cultural thing because Americans and Southerners especially are sort of preoccupied with sex and sordid things, but it's also still really taboo. So that sort of comment would be the kind of comment that a woman would make quietly to another woman when talking about something like a grisly murder. And it's the sort of sexualized violence that a person might think to commit against another person in that situation simply because it is something that is connected to the taboo. Mm. So yeah. it, was, it was a direction I felt like I needed to go in. There's a lot of violence in uh, in this book, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Let's first talk about the setting. Um, the book is called The Shore, and the entire book is set on the shore, multi-generations of family in this place, which is on the Chesapeake Bay off Virginia. So can you describe a bit um, what The Shore is and also why you wanted to set a book there? Okay, well, The Shore, in reality, is the eastern shore of Virginia and technically Maryland. And it's actually a very long peninsula and two islands, Chincoteague and Assateague, that are pretty much only known to the rest of the world from Marguerite Henry's book, Misty of Chincoteague, which is a children's book about the wild ponies on Assateague. I read and that. Yeah. It's Classic it was pony book. Mm -hmm. 
it, and it's it's something that I think every little girl reads, and every every year there is a pilgrimage of young children and young families out to Assateague to see the ponies, and see the pony penning because every year the wild ponies are rounded up by the volunteer firemen to be taken over to Shinkatig and have their shots and be taken care of before they're sent back to the island to live free for another year. So there are all these little girls that come and stare and wonder at these ponies and a lot of the public identity of that place is wrapped up in the ponies but there's also a sort of hidden history to the place because it's always been agriculturally based and when the railroads were big in the US, it was quite easy to get to, and it supplied a massive amount of the East Coast's fresh vegetables. But then after we got refrigerated trucks and the railroads started being shut down, it became much more difficult to get to. And now your options are go by causeway from the southern route or go overland through Maryland, and I think either one, if you're directly across the bay from the center of that long peninsula. It will take you about six or seven hours going north or south to get there. So it's not a place that people really come to anymore unless they have family there or for the ponies. And if, you, if you're born there, you tend to stay there. And if you don't stay there, you wind up coming back there. So it's a rural community that's difficult to escape, partially because it just culturally exerts such a hold on people and because there isn't much potential there to develop yourself. So if you get away, there's nothing you can really do once you get back out to the rest of the world. It's a fascinating um, place for me being a Brit. Um, you know, I've always had this kind of slightly fetishistic idea of the South, the American South as being this fecund, mythical um, place. And, and in the, I mean, the shore, yeah, it, uh, this location exerts such power over them all and it seems the way that you write it it's so bound up in in the characterization as well um, and I love how physically sensual your writing is in the book um, I could feel the humid sweat on my skin as I was reading it um, but there's something also about the sex and violence in the book that seems very much tied to the land is that uh, was that a deliberate choice I think that was that was more subconscious because when I when I came there I immediately felt this ridiculous affinity to the land and I began hearing sort of the stories the people told there and there, there wasn't so much violence apparent but but there was a lot beneath the surface a lot of a lot of the places on the shore said to be haunted and people have disappeared and there, um, I think within the first year that we were living there, there was a fight at the one bar between a husband and wife who were both policemen, and someone got shot. I don't remember if it was the husband shot the wife or the wife shot the husband, but that's the sort of thing that happens, and it doesn't really get talked about or published in the newspapers because everyone knows everyone, and so they all just sort of agree to ignore it. And, well, yeah. So... This book covers um, multiple generations of one family who are have split off into two strands very early in their history. Um, you go all the way to, what year is it, 20? 21. One? Um. Oh. I right <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very, very far in, in human history and, and start in 2143, wow, and, and start very early um, in the 1800s, I think. Uh, what... What did you want to gain from having so many generations living in one place and having their stories set up against each other? Something I've, I've always been really interested in is how um, intergenerational family dynamics work out when a person has a childhood experience and decides they're going to live their life a certain way based on that childhood experience and they either succeed or fail and how then the way they succeed or fail influences their children and their children's children and just basically how the sins of the fathers are visited on the children to the 10th and 11th generations or however many it says in Leviticus. And so I was curious to see how the decisions of the first character, Medora, would influence the way everyone else lived their lives. It's really um, interesting as well in the context of such an isolated place because, of course, there's not much dilution from other 
you know, outside influences. So it's it's the legacy of the land as well as the, the characters. And I loved it, and I thought that it was remarkable how much ground you managed to cover in a book that wasn't like as long as a suitable boy, you know? Um, but did you struggle with that, having so many different strands, or, or did it settle quite neatly for you? I wish it settled quite neatly. I, um, I approached it the wrong way around. I started by writing about the two sisters alone on the marsh, and then I started wondering what happened to their mother. And once I started writing about the mother, I started wondering about her mother and her aunts and her cousins and everyone else that was involved. So I sort of explored from the middle to the edges, and then I realized that I needed to understand better how it all worked together. So I, I felt the entire time as though the structure of the book already existed and I was just exploring territory that was already there. Yeah, and it's interesting just now when you say it was the girls and then the mother and then her mother because the female line is very strong in the mm -hmm. book, you know, like looking at female experience. And obviously you, you slip in and out of the consciousnesses of men as well in your storytelling, but it came across as very much a book about female experience and maybe powerlessness and, and, and how you fight to overcome that. Um, and was that something that, again, was that an intention you started with or did it just emerge as you wrote? I, that was an accident. I, I began thinking about toxic masculinity just at the beginning of the project because I'd had set out to write a book in parts. And so I researched just the psychological writing around masculinity and what masculinity is now and how it has evolved. But I kept writing about it through the eyes of women. And I, I think that just might have been a subconscious tick because there are so many strong women in my family and looking at it through their eyes seemed to be the most natural thing to do. Yeah, and the, the sins of the fathers in, in this book very much seems to be um, rape and abuse by multiple generations of men on, on the women in the family. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to this idea of the sins of the fathers because I'm very interested in this. Our theme today is uh, generations, and we're talking about multi-generational novels, you know, Tolstoy and Wuthering Heights, and um, I think maybe some novels that have influenced this one as well, like Cloud Atlas, but... Do you think that that's true? Do you think families repeat their own mistakes or do you think that's a convenient literary device? Well, I've, I've watched my own relatives repeat their parents' and grandparents' mistakes. I think it's something that we tend to do because not that we're specifically repeating mistakes, but that we tend to enact behavior that we've seen modeled. So if you see someone live their life one way, you don't really have a concept of another way to live it. So you just tend to make the same mistakes because you're subconsciously imitating the people that you grew up around. Yeah, do you think that's true, Octavia? I think you have to try very hard to break the cycle, but I think it can be broken with a lot of therapy <laughs> and a lot of like very, very intense consciousness. Um, but I suppose even in that, in that scenario, is it ever really broken or is it just diverted and reacted against? Because obviously the vibrations of whatever came before are always gonna be there. And I think it's a question of you know, sovereignty. Can you ever be truly sovereign or are you always going to be a sum of all of the parts, you know, the genetic parts, but also where you grew up, the situational element also? And I think that's something that the, the book addresses really, really beautifully. Um, I wanted to ask about the chicken factory because it's this brilliant um, trope that comes through and you get, you know, it's again like a very sensual thing because you get the smell and there's, I can't remember which chapter it's in, but the character's coming back and they know their home because they get the hit by the smell of the, you know, the killing um, of the chickens. And is that, is that true? Is there, is there a big chicken factory in that area? There are actually several chicken factories in that area, and uh, my, my father worked for the local government there, and he said that before the chicken factories, there weren't many jobs. When the chicken factories ca came, everyone was really happy, because even though they smelled horrible, and there, there were chickens going up and down the highway all the time, there were finally jobs. And one of the reasons that the chickens going up and down the highway is still allowed and the battery farms are still allowed and the smell is still allowed is because if they close the plants down, then no one would have a job. Mm. So you've brought up the fact that 
of course the shore exists. There are chicken factories there. You grew up very close to there. How much did you want the landscape of this book to resemble the landscape that exists in the world today? And I think that's particularly pertinent for this book because it has elements of science fiction and magical realism, things that uh, digress from the world that we know it and live it. I wanted it to be as, as close as possible, and it was actually in the final revision that I realized that I had to make the peninsula into an island just because, culturally speaking, they are as isolated as if they were an island. People don't leave. And it's difficult to translate that feeling of isolation to the page if they're still connected to the mainland. It makes people wonder, well, why don't they just go? But that the, the two islands and the peninsula have actually been left off the government maps several times. They've been forgotten about totally. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... I wanted the psychological reality of living there to be reflected in the physical reality. So I turned Accomack County into an island. And I think I moved one or two villages around, specifically Parksley, just so that Chloe would be able to walk to the grocery store and walk to a downtown area. But other than that, it is as exact as I could get it. Amazing. I, w I mean, I really want to visit... <laughs> I feel like I know it so well from being in the and seeing seeing the same place from the eyes of so many different characters over such a broad um, time spectrum and it it not really changing even after devastation comes the land seems to still be very similar um, I think that you I mean the maneuvering through different genres was something that I found really interesting and actually having um, you know this strong sense of realism. And then as the story progresses, and I don't want to give away too much, but trespassing into science fiction territory and kind of, you know, disaster movie style things. Uh, it was so interesting to me because actually those are uh, genres that are often islands of the, uh, in themselves, right, within the literary canon. And having, having them threaded into, you know, what in many ways felt to me like a realist novel um, and the magical realism too, it was... I've never read anything quite like it. Um, and, and, and I wondered, were those parts of the book influenced by other kind of genre fiction? Or again, was it just something that came up as you were threading the stories together? I, I think it, it came out of two things. Um, three things, actually. I wanted to speak back to all of the books that had touched me over the course of my life. And so 20-odd years... That was a lot of reading, and there was a lot of realist fiction in it. Um, oh, Faulkner comes to mind, but then there was also C.S. Lewis and Cloud Atlas and lots of magic realism, the writers of whom escape me right now. And so I was thinking of A Hundred Years of Solitude. I haven't actually it. read that one, but ah, it's, it's on my bookshelf. That's so you should read it because mm -hmm. you've, you've somehow absorbed many of its themes and, and uh, uh, structures as well. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, I, I grew up in a Pentecostal-adjacent church. And just in that Christian tradition, the idea that the supernatural and the natural exist side by side is, is something that is hammered home constantly. So the idea that fantasy and realism could not exist together was something that just didn't make sense to me. And then also, when I began writing this book, I was in my final year of a writing degree, and I was just done with being told what I could and couldn't do. So... Amen, sister. I, 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 I was trying to tell them to get stuffed in about <laughs> 120 pages. That makes me so happy. <laughs> Let's... Uh, I really want to talk more about your upbringing in a Pentecostal church. I'm sorry, but I just find that... I find this really interesting. And um, at the... I never want to ask writers how much of themselves is in their writing because that's a, a question that could go around forever. But how do you think it's influenced your writing um, besides what you just said about fantasy and, and reality? Hmm. I, I think it, well, it has mostly influenced the way I think about reality. That I, don't, that I don't think that's a question anyone's ever asked. I might need to think about that for a while. It's... It's influenced the way I feel about uh, and think about and write about things that were when I was a child, especially taboo. And that's something that I didn't really notice until I came to Britain, because here, sexuality and erotic writing 
and just adolescent sexuality is treated in a much different way than it was where I grew up. And making the pe my readers over here understand the context is so much more difficult than I thought it would be because I didn't imagine that those differences existed when I was younger. And then also my cultural context is very different from most people my age in the United States. So when I sit down to write anything, first I have to get past that cultural context and decide what how I'm going to deal with it, whether I'm going to be writing from the assumed cultural context of someone my age in the United States, or if I'm going to stick with what I actually did grow up with and then have to interpret it to an audience that's not familiar with it. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine that being a, a struggle to decide. But I think, you know, essentially it sounds to me, and I'm not trying to pop psychologize you <laughs> at all, but growing up in, um, an in, uh, in a way that is at odds to the mainstream, you know, you have an experience of being an other, and that I think comes through in the book very strongly. This the various characters who feel like they're on the outside of some kind of thing or there's um, a disconnect. There was another, I don't know if you've seen a film called The Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yes, I have. Yes, I was thinking of that the whole way through as well because again, it's a, have you seen it, Carrie? It's a, um, another, another text, let's say, that, that weaves land and magic and humanity in and especially with your your characters who are the storm bringers and who can control the weather i was having visuals from from that and i know it's not quite the same I mean my geography in america is appalling that's in new orleans which is not is it not that close um it's, it's closer than california okay both physically <laughs> and ideologically forgive my ignorance <laughs> so uh, yes i agree that that there is that the sense of otherness in the book um where where do you think that comes from? Does it come from other literature? Does it come from your own interest in, in outsiders? I, I think it comes from partially growing up in a very religious community. I was homeschooled until I went to university, and my mother is an immigrant. So I, I was always an other, and I guess I, I'm, I'm not even preoccupied with the concept of otherness so much as I'm trying to figure it out. And that that just might be something I can't get away from. Yeah, you, you may find it, find it drives your fiction forever. Mm -hmm. But I, th I mean, I think it's a driving force for a lot of writers because the, you know, the experience of being a writer means you're an observer and you're constantly setting yourself a little bit apart in order to watch and look and, and, and try to understand. Um, do you think this is a hopeful book about the future? <laughs> I think ultimately it's it's a hopeful book. I felt I felt very hopeful when I was writing it. Although after I finished, I felt guilty as a feminist because I didn't imagine a matriarchal utopia for the future. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine a matriarchal utopia for the future. So but I I think overall it is it is generally a hopeful book that when the dust settles after every apocalypse basically mm. things will even out that's interesting um it i thought it was about the survival of humanity despite everything mm -hmm. good <laughs> i can agree with that good um i also wanted to ask you about the south because mm -hmm. you're you're from the south you're writing about the south there's a, an inescapable tradition of Southern writers who, like Faulkner, who you mentioned, Eudora Welty, Carson McCullers, um, Flannery O'Connor. Do you find that a burden to be writing? By, by being a Southern writer writing about the South, you almost have to be writing in a tradition? I, d I don't know, but then I, I said earlier, I've, I've got this bone-deep inclination to tell everyone to get stuffed. So I've... Um, I found myself writing about the South when I was young and writing compulsively about it because it was it was sort of what was around me and it was the culture that was around me. And then when I started reading those Southern writers, rather than feeling like I was trapped by a tradition, I felt like I'd come home because there were these other people that saw the landscape that I saw and were seemed to be equally touched by it and also understood the sort of cultural mores and trends 
and traps that I was trying to make sense of myself. So I quite like the fact that that tradition exists and that I can both push back against it and be comfortable working within its parameters. And I suppose it comes back to what we were saying about place being so vital, actually, as a, a place of um, you know laying down roots, family tree. It's even in the, w the way we speak about these things. Um, and somewhere like the American South, which has so many characteristics that are unusual when compared with the rest of the world. Like like you were saying at the beginning of the interview, you know, um, the taboo element about sexuality. I mean, I find that so fascinating. Because I grew up in London, I couldn't have had a more different kind of situational experience of like growing up than the new characters or the new perhaps. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I found having the chance to trespass into that area and that arena really, really fascinating. Um, do you think that that element of life in the South is going to change, or, or is it so strong it will pervade, per per uh, pervade, it's not even what I mean, you know, carry on, persevere, prevail? Thank you. There, there seems to be a subset of culture, I don't even know if it's a minority, that's very interested in preserving and even increasing the strength and the rigidity of that cultural trend. And actually, um, for my research at the UEA recently, I've, I've been looking at censorship in the 70s and 80s, and it turns out there was a move towards liberality in the 60s and 70s, and there was a backlash towards conservatism in the 80s and 90s that the South especially is still in the midst of. And there are people that are pushing for traditional gender roles and pushing against women's rights and sort of not really pushing for racial segregation, but they'd certainly be happy if it came back. And they're vocal and they're involved and there doesn't seem to be any reasoning with them. So I, I don't have a whole lot of hope for that. Do you think that writing can help with that? Do you think a book like yours has anything to say in that debate? Oh, I would, I would love it if, I, if it would. I've, I've thought for a long time that showing people who are very set in their views how they're wrong doesn't really work. But if you can get the kids to see what's wrong with their parents' views, then maybe the next generation can do better. So that's more what I'm hoping for, I think. And then maybe, maybe some of the more flexible adults might change their minds as well. On that hopeful note, <laughs> let's end the interview. Sarah Taylor, thank you so much for being on Literary Friction. The book is called The Shore, and it is available in bookshops now. Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and we were just hearing from Sarah Taylor, the author of The Shore. Now we're going to talk about the theme today, which is uh, the multi-generational saga, as it's called in the industry. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so the, the question, I think, is uh, why is this a genre in the first place? Why is this a book that we read over and over again and, and talk about as its own specific genre? the one thing that instantly comes to mind for me is that it brings history onto a human scale. You can talk about the sweep of history throughout multiple generations while still having people and characters to pin it to. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives you a span of different voices that you can engage with. Um, and, and, and so it really gives you a chance to show evolution of character as well in parallel with history and often nature as well. I feel like when I was, was thinking about things for this discussion, a lot of the books that came to mind, um, the changing environment or the static environment is just as important as the characters that change either in parallel with it or against it, you know? So often the theme of multi-generational novels is the lastingness of the land. Yeah, yeah. And the cycle of life and death, of course. Yeah. Because if you trespass over from one generation into the next, someone's going to have to die. Yeah, that's true. Um, and as we were talking with Sarah in our discussion earlier, 
it's the sins of the fathers. Mm. So this idea that generations are bound to repeat themselves, that the way that we raise our children is going to affect what they do. um, And it's incredibly hard to break the cycle. And we're fascinated by this idea that we can't get away from our past and can't get away from people in our family trees that we haven't maybe even heard of. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the thought of some kind of predestination being not just genetic, but also situational. Yeah. Um, but then so many times in these novels, you have the character who, who leaves and returns as a sort of prodigal son or daughter. And often they're repeating the same mistakes, yeah. even though they haven't been bound to the place in the same way. Can you think of a novel where that happens? Uh, I'm putting well you I was on the thinking, spot. No, I know, you really have. <laughs> but a bit in White Teeth, yeah. one of the twins, the brothers. Um, who goes who when he's sent to Bangladesh? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know what? It's I haven't read that book for a long time, and I remember bits of it, elements of it, really vividly. But then, as often happens with me, just huge narrative devices disappear <laughs> from my memory. Well, let's talk about white teeth in the context of the diaspora, because I think mm. that's another really interesting way that um, these multi generational sagas have been written. And um, I don't know. It there are a lot of Indian novels that are about the diaspora. And about multi-generations of family. And I don't know, I, I don't want to make sweeping, broad um, generalizations. But I think maybe um, that, in a way, having multiple generations of a family in a book is the best way to depict what it's like to have to move across continents. And mm. the the ways that immigrants um, always come up against their children who are raised in new culture yeah who have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new and white teeth definitely deals with that there's the there's the sort of parents generation that come to london and have their kids um and are forced to reckon with what uh what london does to their kids both good and bad i think and um but many you know i was thinking the brief and wondrous life of oscar wow yes um, by juno diaz i don't know if you can think of any other um well i was thinking of well, obviously, A Suitable Boy is one of the biggest and most well-known multi-generational sagas, but less about diaspora. Um, no, I was thinking of um, something that has completely left my mind. <laughs> it's okay. We'll cut I that out. It will come back to me. Um, yeah. I, oh, that's right. Colm Toybin's Brooklyn, okay. which is about Irish families coming to the States for the first time. Well, one, one the daughter. And again, that cultural clash of coming from d- a traditional Catholic Irish place and landing in this new world that is so new because it's right at the beginning of you know america finding its feet as a white nation as opposed to an indigenous one Mm. really Um, really interesting that's about to come out as a movie is it oh of course i've seen the posters yeah you know i would definitely see that because i think he is a fantastic writer he's very very good at characterization um and i can imagine in fact that's actually that's an interesting point that these multi-generational novels um because they are sagas, <coughs> because they are epic on some kind of scale. Um, obviously, translating them into film or television. Well, I think of the multi-generational novel as the equivalent of a TV series versus a film, right? Like, the one I always think of is Brideshead Revisited, which is this exquisite book, in my opinion. I love Even in War, and was an exquisite BBC show. I don't know how many episodes so it was. So is that series. multi-generational? It doesn't cover the same amount of time, but you do see a family of people growing older and facing adversity as the war comes and stuff. Um, but no, I don't think you'd, you're right. You don't. It's not that like um, Sebastian Flight and Gang. It feels multi generational, doesn't it? Well, it feels you know, it, it feels that way because you do have many different generations living in close proximity and engaging with one another. But it's maybe it's more about family than it is about multi generational. I think we can allow it. I think we can allow it too. Yeah, but that's an interesting point about so um, the the box set versus the um, a film. Mm. And Brideshead Revisited is is famously a a box set or a mini series. A wonderful mini series, yeah. And Um, then they made a film of it fairly recently, which I didn't see because I couldn't imagine how they would pack so many stories into two hours. Mm. And. Well, it gets back to the idea of what can books do that mm. that other mediums can't do. And there's a density to books that can hold the many, many generations of one family within it without seeming overstuffed. I mean, to, to go back to the shore, actually, 
it's an incredible sweep of time Massive. and and we're getting little bits um from from over the years but i just can't really think of another medium that could do that and and it's the same with cloud atlas actually which is less a multi-generational story if only because the characters aren't connected familially mm. but um they tried to make a movie out of that and it was awful really yeah know your limits <laughs> <laughs> but um what what do you think well i think it's also something to do with the experience of reading a book like that as well and this is where something like the shore really deviates and i think you're absolutely right it's a, it in many ways i think that sarah's book if she if it were written in a more straight realist style starting from chronologically the beginning and ending in the future it would be such a different book and it's to do with her very skillful negotiation of style and genre in the way that she's structured the book that allow that vast sweep of time. I mean, I read a review of it in The Guardian. I can't remember the author, um, the journalist, but who said there's almost too much in that book for mm. a novel, for it to be a straight realist novel. Um, and when I think of, you know, like War and Peace is one of my favorite books of all time, multi-generational as well. Um, it's when you read books like that, you settle into them and you're going to be with them for a long time, like A Suitable Boy as well. You settle in and you're going to be with it for a long time because it's massive. And so the way that you relate to the characters in texts like that is so different from a book that you're going to read, you know, in a week or yeah. whatever. And I think that's a big part of it, that the act of reading texts like that often mirrors in a minute way the, spa the expanse of time. And, and I also think, because of that, you re if you revisit those kind of books at different times in your life, you identify with different generations. And that's fascinating too. Like I've read War and Peace, not all the way through, but you know, three times. I mean, I read it all the way through the first time. <laughs> but um, I go back to it at, at, at different times in my life and I have a really different um, experience of it. I think that is such a good point. Um, oh, thank uh, well you. Both <laughs> of those points, actually. Um, and I was thinking of the Foresight Saga as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Which is it, it really is meant to, the, the experience of reading the book gives you in minutia, as you, minutia, 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 minutia. <laughs> um, gives you the experience of, of the sweep of mm. time and the, and the changing of families. And yeah. it's a slog, that book. It is a slog. They made a miniseries that's like 10 million hours long <laughs> as well. <laughs> I've watched it all. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> but it's great. It, it, it's great. And I think, um, you know, as you, as you said, miniseries today, those, those shows on HBO have really picked up this form of storytelling. Yeah, very much so. And the form, the format of having different voices coming to the fore mm. at different moments, which I think is, again, not so much in the traditional grand, realist, multi-generational saga, but in books like Sarah's, where there's a, um, a, pl a playfulness with form, with literary form. And actually, I can't help but think that that is, again, going to be connected to how we consume that kind of culture these days. And, you know... Again, this was it came up in the Guardian Review, but I thought it was a really good point, particularly about the shore, that there are certain um, little metonymical things that recur in the different stories that you kind of get a reward mm. as the reader for spotting. Yeah, it's very pleasurable to read multi-generational sagas. There's yeah. the sense of I know something you don't know exactly. with the characters. Exactly. So um, I, I was thinking of Wuthering Heights as well, which, mm. is, which um, has very distinct sections with two different generations of the family. And one of the pleasures, I think the pleasure of reading Wuthering Heights is you see these children acting out things um, mm. that if they knew the history of their family and their parenthood, they would never act out. Yeah. And we can look at them as gods. Yeah. Um, well, or, or as psychoanalysts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean the new does. god. It really, oh my god, absolutely. Oh my psychoanalyst. Yeah, it really does place you in that role, like you say, of having, having way more knowledge than the characters themselves. Yeah. And that, again, that's a very pleasurable ego satisfying space to be in isn't it as a reader yeah and then i guess the question is is this just us inserting symbolism and literary tropes into our stories um or does that actually happen i asked that to sarah as well and i and i don't i don't know if i know i yeah. think maybe it's powerful um to to want to understand generations in human history as something that has a pattern yeah and maybe it doesn't possibly you don't get the answer to that until the end of your life 
because you know if you have children or whatever you until you have experienced being part of that multi-generational span in every position p available to you as the child as the adult as the elderly person i don't know i don't i mean i think that the argument for genetic predisposition <laughs> for certain you know um mental conditions that determine your character it's a very strong argument for that mm. but again as we see in a, in a lot of these novels well also because they are very tied to place so again about families that are intimately connected to the land and again i think i said this in the interview with sarah but it's even in the language you know the family tree roots mm. you know going back to your roots all of that kind of thing um so yes i think being in that position of um, superior knowledge of the predestination. Yeah, I, I don't know, I'm rambling, but I, I don't think we'll, we'll, no. we'll never know. We won't be able to answer that question. But we, we must tell know. stories. We must tell <laughs> stories. <laughs> well, let's talk about our favorite um, multi-generational novels. So uh, I am going to pick a very obvious one, probably the most obvious one, but Ooh. I'm gonna, you know, just gonna go with it, it. which is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, it is, as most listeners will know, the masterful tale of the Buendia family, which was first published in 1967. And I really think this is the masterclass in the multi-generational novel. I think it's uh, it's very much a, a product of, of many novels that have come before it, but I think most novels written about families now have some echoes of it. It's mm, interesting. Um, and it's it's all about inevitable rep, uh, repetition of history within a family, but it's also about um, the the history of Latin America and Colombia, and I think it really makes the case that one family, and um, and also fantasy is the best way to show what happens in history. It's it's just beautiful. Um, I read it years ago in about one sitting and I was constantly flipping back to the family tree to make sense. <laughs> uh, like every <laughs> character is named Jose Arcadio, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> which, um, which was funny in the context of reading Sarah's book, because that's another book where you have to keep flipping back to the family tree. But yeah. I just, I don't know if I've really done it justice in this description, but it is just one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. And one of the most affecting it's, I think it's fascinating as well that it has had such a huge literary impact considering it wasn't written in English. It's it's unusual that it has yeah. had such wide-reaching impact in the English-speaking yeah. literary world, essentially. And I should say I, I read the English translation. A appalling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Octavia. <laughs> I read it in Spanish years ago when my mm. Spanish was much better than it is I now. Knew so you, I knew you I would. Know, just allow me a little <laughs> showing off. It's, you know, it's okay. not the end of the world. Um, what is your recommendation? <laughs> well, mine, okay. Mine is is possibly slightly um, wide of the theme because it is multi-generational in that it features voices of different family members, but it doesn't cover the span of time. Because when I was thinking of the books, it was either going to be War and Peace or it was going to be White Teeth, and I thought, do you know what? Everybody knows a lot about those texts. So I'm going to say um, The Poisoned Wood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver mm -hmm. because I thought of it instantly when I was reading Sarah's book, The Shaw, because similarly it starts off in a, as a very realist type of text but it ends up going far beyond realism and I don't want to give it away but you you, you do leave um, the environment that you've spent the entire book in and <coughs> it's about um, a family called the Prices who um, in 1959 they schlep across from the United States from Georgia in the, in the USA to the village of Kalanga in the Belgian Congo so as about as different as you could possibly imagine driven by the whim of the father, Nathan, who's a missionary, and he wants to go and do his God's work. But his voice is not in the book at all. He's, he's represented as this rigid and immovable character. And then the story is narrated by the mother and the four daughters, and their voices alternate as time goes on, and they face all of these different challenges. Um, and just like in the shore, the physical landscape that they're in exerts all kinds of pressures on them, and is almost a character in itself. It's so present. And um, King Silver is an excellent user of pathetic fallacy. Um, but yeah, it, it, I read it a long time ago, and it's one of those books that I keep thinking about. I still find myself thinking about, especially in terms of how to build um, really a lot of tension in a, it within a family context. But again, it, it's it, like you were talking about diaspora before. It, it 
it is looking at that and that what happens to a family when you take them out of the place where they feel safe and happy and put them in somewhere that is very foreign um, and looking at kind of how the human spirit copes with that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, you know, I, and actually when I was thinking about it for the show, I was thinking, God, I'd like to go back to it and read it again because she has a very um, well-observed perspective on, on, these, on these characters. Um, so yeah. yeah. I actually read that relatively recently and what impressed what me most, I really liked it. Um, and I think it's so hard to write a novel in different voices. Oh yeah. Especially when they're in the first person. And yeah. and she just pulls that off with a plum. With and with such effortless style, doesn't she? It's yeah, amazing. Know, and, it and, and and there's such distinctive voices. Really and distinctive voices. Come to life immediately in and they're not when you start reading them. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I, I completely agree with I you. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Good. well we'll be back in a minute with um Sarah to give our recommendations. is Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Sarah Taylor, who has come to do her book recommendation. Very exciting. Um, but why don't we start with you, Octavia? Sure thing. So my recommendation this month is um, a reread, which I don't do very often, but I recently reread um, The First Bad Man by Miranda July, which was published this year. And I enjoyed it so much again that I, I really wanted to talk about it. Um, it's not a book I thought I was going to like, you know, and, and July has been accused of being, you know, self-consciously kooky in her other work, and, you know, she's an artist who works across lots of different media. But I, I don't know, I actually think that the term kooky is a really sexist way of silencing women who have dissenting or unexpected points of view, so I'm not, you know, really down with that. Um, but, but there is something about... Uh, a, a deliberately obtuse style of writing that can be quite boring. So I guess I wasn't I wasn't sure, but a very dear friend of mine gave it to me and said, <coughs> you know, you'll read it in a day and a half. And I did the first time. And the second time, um, I got even more out of it. So I, I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's her voice is definitely unusual, but she's really writing about universal truths. And that's the thing that I found so fascinating that that stood up for a second reading. Um, and so the, the main character, Cheryl, the protagonist, whose voice and mind you live in the whole time, I identified with her so much <laughs> in ways that if you'd given me a synopsis of the book, I would say it had nothing to do with anything to do with me. Um, but she really gets to the heart of kind of a lot of universal truths about sexuality and sort of selfhood and concepts of, you know, how to live and what we want from life and, um, and obviously very much within a female context, but it's, I think men would enjoy reading it just as much, you know, because the characterization is great. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would really, really recommend it. Um, it's very funny in places and very uncomfortable in other places. Um, but it, it's one of those books that kind of holds a mirror up to you in a way that is unusual, but fundamentally really illuminating. It's funny you should mention that because I watched the movie she made, You, Me, and Everyone We Know, um, and found it really self-consciously kooky. But maybe I should read this and not say kooky ever again. I, I feel shamed. <laughs> okay, well, my, uh, my recommendation is a book I'm reading right now. I haven't finished yet, so it may all go wrong, but uh, hopefully not. It doesn't seem to be going in, in the wrong direction. It's called H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. I'm sure most people listening to this and uh, both Octavia and Sarah have just nodded their heads in <laughs> recognition. It was something of a sensation last year. It won loads of prizes. Um, it was a bestseller as well, which if you think about it is really odd for a book about a hawk. Um, it's a miracle, um, which excites me. But I, for some reason I was resistant to it. I think partially because it was so popular I thought there's no way this is as good as, as people say it is. I know I'm such a snob. 
But I finally picked it up, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, the story begins when the author's father dies, and she's always been obsessed with hawks from a very young age, not just training hawks, but the sort of paraphernalia that comes along with them, the little hoods and the gloves and the jesses, which are the strings that, that keep them from flying away. And so she decides to train, well, buy and train a hawk, um, but not just a hawk, a goshawk, which is known as the most moody and difficult hawk to train uh, of all the hawks. Uh, so it's, of course, a story about her relationship with an animal, um, about what the, the sort of patience and mindfulness necessary to understand a wild animal and to, and to tame it. Um, but it's also about grief, uh, and, and quite beautifully so. And ten I, I think the best books about grief are tangential books about grief, and this certainly is. Um, it's also a the story of the writer T.H. White. He wrote The Once and Future King, um, but he also wrote a book called The Goshawk, which is a classic of hawkery books about his own attempts to train a, a goshawk. And, and she weaves that in really skillfully. And it's just very beautifully written, um, but not in a pretentious way. And so odd and, and so exposed a portrait of someone in the midst of grief. And I, I really would recommend it. So, Sarah, could we have your recommendation, please? Well, I'd like to recommend the last book that I read voraciously. You know, some, some books you pick up and you work your way through them slowly, and then some books you pick up and then you realize it's 3 a.m. and you have no intention of going to bed. And I love it when I find those books, but you can't find them intentionally. And the last one that did that to me was Snake Ropes by Jess Richards. I think it was, it was published a bit ago, and it starts out in the voice of a 16-year-old girl living in a small community on an island. It's never stated where this island is, but it sounds a lot like the Hebrides. And these men come and take away the handicrafts they make and leave them food. And it seems like a very straightforward situation, but slowly the things beneath the surface that the reader doesn't know about and the narrator doesn't know about start making problems. And so over the course of the story, you have to sort of piece together what's actually going on. And there is a very heavy dose of magic realism, I'd, I'd say, as part of this, that seems to fit really well with the setting and the story that's being told. It's, it's a sort of place where, of course, reality isn't all that it seems. So. I don't think I can say anything more <laughs> about it without giving things away. Sounds brilliant. And I haven't heard of it. I don't know if you have, Octavia. No, no, me neither, but um, I want to read it. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it for today's show. Thank you to Sarah Taylor, whose novel The Shore is out in bookstores now, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast download on iTunes or on nts.live. Note the new website. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Lit Friction, and we would love you to follow us. And we're also on Facebook. And we're also on Facebook. We're everywhere. We've got it all covered. Yeah. <laughs> you should just rate us and listen on every platform. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> God. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Piano playing on the ocean floor